You are listening to Keystone's Stock Talk Show, episode 218. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We have a great show planned for you this week. We start by talking about my interview this past week on Money Talks with Mike Campbell and our upcoming electrification special report. We will also talk briefly about Meta's launch of the Twitter competitor Threads, as well as I will talk an interesting takeover bid from death services company Park Lawn Corporation on the TSX, uh, symbol PLC, of the company Carriage Services Inc., CSV, on the New York Stock Exchange. Both companies we have interviewed in the past. Aaron answers a viewer question on AZZ Inc., symbol AZZ on the New York Stock Exchange, an industrial company that provides metal galvanizing and coating solutions to a number of end markets, including infrastructure and renewable energy. The company just reported strong Q1 results on Friday with 89% growth in revenue, 63% growth in adjusted EBITDA. Aaron will let you know if the company is a potential opportunity. Brett has put together an interesting segment on earnings quality and how it ties into the valuation of a company. The topic comes up because on the show, we commonly highlight certain adjusted earnings metrics uh, within public companies that they report on that we do not necessarily agree with. And a simple explanation of this is now in order. Finally, fresh off a weekend wedding, uh, if it was his or his friends, we are not Yet, sure, Brennan rips into a fellow Canadian podcaster after viewing an ad for an easy ETF portfolio using BMO's ETFs. So let's get to the show. Uh, I got my co-hosts here, Aaron and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How you doing, Brett? Aaron, you're, you're just back, right? You're, you're, you uh, had a little vacation. Physically, yes. Mentally, mentally I'm still on vacation. Are you ever? Mentally, yeah. anywhere, really. Yeah. That's it. You're just lofting away in the cloud. I had to come back a little bit early because I heard that the podcast was falling apart. And we it's were true. This, isn't this just an AI out. representative? It's not even you, is it? I'm actually on the generated right now. This. My background is AI generated. <laughs> That's yeah. impressive. Well, this weekend, I was a guest, the guest of honor, I will call myself, on Money Talks with Michael Campbell. Uh, I guess we could probably put a link into the uh, the email that we send out to anybody who's subscribed to this podcast, send it out to listeners. We could also put a link at the bottom of YouTube, probably, Brett, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, for the show, so you can link to that and listen to the entire episode. It's always enjoyable kind of to guest on that show. Not kind of, it is enjoyable. Uh, Mike's a good interviewer. It really lets you kind of talk, get your point across. The, the interview is usually pretty free-flowing, which is great. This weekend, I updated uh, Hammond Power, symbol HPS.A. We'd recommended it the last time I was on in March of 2023, just this year, four or five months ago. Um, I've recommended it in October of this year. Uh, it was at 16 bucks then. And 
even back 20 years, if you can believe it on this show, uh, the stock in the last four months is up 75%, 203% since October, and over 4,000% since uh, 2002. So it's done quite well. Mike wanted an update on the company. We went through our current thoughts on Hammond Power, the valuations, and what we do with the stock right now. And that discussion, because the company has played into the electrification boom, it dovetailed into our thoughts on some work we're currently doing right now at Keystone on an electrification report. We're putting this together, compiling uh, individual reports, interviewing management teams right now to give uh, you a broad idea of the type of reports or, or sorry, companies that we're looking at. It's anything that will be influenced by the electrification boom from EVs or electric vehicle companies, battery stocks, rare earth companies, electrical equipment, electrical engineering, electrical maintenance, grid software, utilities, electrical components or materials used in in electrical components, anything associated with this sector. The report started with around 400 companies. It'll have statistical analysis of around 50 plus and some potential high conviction buys on some companies in that sector that we right now, look, we really like right now. We're trying to find the next Hammond Power. Again, up 615% in the past 18 months. Uh, just electrification stocks, maybe they're well-known, maybe they fly under the radar, but they're going to play into this, what we think is a decade long or more boom as the world moves to electric. And I think we'll also let you know what to avoid in the sector, some of the overhyped companies that really don't have the fundamental cash flow behind the businesses. You may heard a lot about them um, in this movement, but uh, they're not companies to invest in right now. So we'll, we'll talk about all of those companies. And uh, we're working on that right now and interviewing some last companies over the next week uh, to potentially include in that. You guys got any comments on our electrification work been, right now? It's been fun to work on so far. I'm excited because um, I've been tasked with uh, comparing all of the EVs. And like Ryan said, um, you know, there's some some landmines in there as well as, you know, some more quality companies. But, uh, you know, I'm going to make a nice uh, a nice table and uh, outline for, for clients and anyone who buys the report, uh, you know, all of these EVs. Um, so I've been enjoying going through that personally. Um, that's my two cents. We look yeah, forward to your table. One way to look at the, this report as well is we're casting a fairly wide net um, originally yeah. in terms of you know what we would consider as a company that's contributing to the electrification trend. But then within that larger group, we we apply obviously a very rigorous criteria of revenue and profitability. Um, but we also kind of look a step beyond that, and we're looking at a group of companies which today maybe don't satisfy that full criteria, but they're interesting growth-oriented companies. And we see them as, as potentially transitioning into, uh, into a range where the profitability, the growth, the valuation uh, would be something that would interest us. So there's hopefully some companies that we, I mean, there are some current recommendations that will be in there. So there, there will certainly be some recommendations, hopefully a couple new recommendations of companies that fit our criteria today. Um, I'm confident in that but also a group of companies that we want to keep a close eye on um, that are really emerging uh, and have the potential of being highly profitable over the next couple of years. Yep, for sure. And live update, I just got an email to my inbox of one company we're going to set up an interview. So we'll be doing that Wednesday. So remind me after the show, we got to book an interview with one of the companies right there. So we reach out to a number of management teams 
uh, set up these uh, calls, doing a call on Wednesday with one of the companies that actually, it kind of reminds me a bit of Hammond Power in, in that, that they're, you know, kind of ancillary to the uh, electrification movement, but certainly a part of it and uh, have kind of been overlooked uh, relative to some of the more high flying names in the sector. So should be interesting interview. And uh, we look forward to putting that out over the next month and uh, getting that out to clients. Now, I also wanted to talk just briefly meta uh, of Facebook uh, origins released threads. So this past week threads that look similar to Twitter and lets users post messages, reply to other users and like or repost messages. The service also lets users of meta owned Instagram follow the same accounts on threads, which could help uh, people add followers uh, is the way I think they're looking at it. Now, meta threads app debuted a day earlier than expected this past week, offering a billion users or more than a billion users with an alternative to Twitter growing uh, there with people are growing frustrated with uh, Elon Musk's own social media services. It was a good time to launch it. Threads had been slated to originally launch uh, released at 10 a.m. Eastern time on July 6th, but the company on Wednesday of this past week pushed forward the countdown clock to 7 p.m. Eastern time on July 5th. Uh, in terms of downloads, it has been met with historic early success. Now, Threads actually broke Chat GPT's record for downloads this year. It was just uh, the record was happened this year. Now, it reached 100 million downloads in just four days. Give you some context on how rapid the user base has grown. Uh, Twitter took roughly three years to do what Threads did in one day. It was a different time then, obviously, but it's impressive to see. Twitter, uh, I believe, has 330 million monthly active users. Uh, Twitter's lead, so you can see with 100 million of threads already, their lead is narrowing quickly. Now, threads has a long way to go to reach anything close to the engagement numbers of the engagement numbers that Twitter boasts. But Zuckerberg certainly um, launched it amid further frustration with Twitter at an opportune time. Whether it does what Facebook did to MySpace really remains to be seen at this point. Right. I think, I think really it, that is an impressive number, a hundred million in four days. Of course, Facebook is drawing off of what is already a substantial user base from Facebook and Instagram. So what's really important is how does that trend now, now that it's, it's, it's made its introduction to the existing user base that Facebook has, how does it trend from here? Right. Our, Got to get engagement. Got to have people yeah, like, using it. Are you going to get yeah. engagement? Are you going to get uh, um, further adoption and and growth? But I mean, I'm not really a big Twitter user at all. I don't know a lot about threads, but honestly, I don't really care. The only thing I care about is the fight that's being planned between <laughs> Musk and Zuckerberg, right? That's mm-hmm. all that matters. That's really threads is what this whole thing is about. Um Facebook talked about launching threads. Musk got upset. He challenged Zuckerberg to a fight. Zuckerberg uh, accepted. So who's your money on in that scenario? Well, my money was originally on Zuckerberg just because Zuckerberg trains. And Younger, a little more fit. But, yeah. but I think it's 5'7 versus about 6'2". Quite a bit six, smaller. Two, he's 155 it? pounds compared yeah. to Musk's you know, 240 pounds. I'm guessing a lot of that 240 pounds is not, you know, raw athletic muscle. I could be wrong. I, I, I don't you know. dare say. However, you know, <laughs> Musk is being trained by GSP, right? So um, GSP stepped up to train Musk. 
I don't know, man. I just, oh, I'm God. just a fan. I'm so you'd, you'd pay to see it, though, wouldn't you? That, pay, that's the I'd only fight you'd pay to see. And it's see. pathetic because I think the whole thing is just a complete joke. I don't really know what it's over. <laughs> I don't actually think it's going to happen. But if it happens and it's a mm-hmm. full MMA pa- match, then, yeah, I'd, I'd pay to see it. Because yeah. that's what that both of them need is more money. More of our money. <laughs> that's awesome. That they should be free. Uh, it would just it would be a public. Well, challenge. I mean, I'm sure any proceeds that they get would they would just say would go to charity, right? But uh, Dana White from the UFC was talking about setting up a pay per view, so I'm sure there's there. I'm sure a lot of people will will dish out the money. Yeah, and just Which, um, what do we got here? Brennan's so, got a slide. Yeah, I've got a. I, I came across for you this, listening uh, on, uh, on the podcast. Brennan's I, putting I, up a slide here. Yeah, I came across on uh, Instagram or across this uh, that Yahoo Finance posted, and I mean Ryan already kind of went over the numbers and how quick, uh, you know, uh, months to reach a hundred million uh, global monthly active users. So realistically, you know, th- Threads put up you know tremendous numbers here, like basically just in a few days reaching, you know, 100 million global monthly active users. And as well, something that's important to note um, is that uh, Threads isn't actually available in the European Union right now, um, just because of, uh, I believe, because of regulatory concerns. Um, So they basically are, you know, leading the pack here with monthly active users or the time to get to 100 million um, without the European Union. Um, And I think that, you know, it is crazy that they, you know, are beating ChatGPT as well as TikTok. Um, I mean, I still have never downloaded TikTok, but I know that it is so, so popular among uh, young kids. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite yeah, interesting. Starting with that base has to help massively. For sure, right? for just, sure. Yeah. And, you know, like you guys just said, it really depends on, okay, they've had a first good uh, few weeks. Let's see really what happens, you know, going forward. Um, but I mean, it seems like, you know, Zuckerberg almost thinks that the changes at Twitter maybe are... Uh, opening up uh, some people to switch. So I guess I guess we'll see. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm looking at this graph. I don't know what it has to do with the fight, though. Oh, it has nothing to do with the fight. I was just jumping back. Get it off to, uh... the screen. No, I'm joking. No, <laughs> we um, want to see the fight. Yeah. Is, I think is Thread's going to be a cool like enough name? Perspective, you know, what Zuckerberg's doing is smart because he's seeing an opportunity here right now where, you know, people are loving to hate on Twitter. I mean, they already always have to an extent, but... Musk's ownership of it has made it polarizing. It's actually yep. made it like politically polarized. So there's an opportunity to like grab some market share. A lot of people now want um, an alternative to Twitter. They're only going to mm-hmm. take that alternative if it serves them to the same extent, right? Like Twitter is a very useful tool for a lot of people, whatever they want to say about it, whatever they want to think about Musk, right? And I think those people will continue to use Twitter until there's a viable alternative. But you know, for Facebook with their existing user base, their existing infrastructure to strike now and try and steal some market share, steal users away. Um, yeah, it's 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 a good time for them to try. And it it will it come down to the name? Is Threads a better alternative? Like, there's alternatives out there like Mastodon or something like that mm-hmm. now. But I think it's who's going to say I'm going to be on Mastodon? Oh, it's too it's too Twitter. large of a name. Even for Sounds threads, stupid. even for Facebook, I think it's 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 a tough uphill climb because these social media platforms, the usership is really sticky. Like when you're used to using yeah. it, you've got it. You know, it's already developed that critical mass. You've already you've got your um your network in place there. It's difficult then to just move to another it, platform. It is interesting to me how they 
in the, if you look at the release of this and the press release that released it, they really associated it with Instagram versus Facebook. Like I think mm-hmm. uh, I, I read an article with something Facebook in the name of 40, 40 mentions. Like you and me. Yeah, 40 right. mentions. It's true. 40 mentions of uh, Instagram before they even mentioned Facebook. And yeah. they mentioned Facebook, I think, once or something in their meta did. So it's interesting how they're positioning it versus you know, is this going to be Twitter for a younger group? I'll, uh, you know, I don't know where the the uh, demographic skew for Twitter, but I would think it would be, I mean, not as old as Facebook, but I would think it would be on the older side. And maybe they're positioning this to be, you know, a younger audience uh, that it skews towards. But, you know, it, it'll be interesting how many people switch over. I was going to ask too, have any of you signed up for threads yet? I don't because I, I was going to do I'm, it. I'm this a bad week. example. I don't use any of those. Like I have a Facebook account, which I almost never use. Um, So I never use Twitter. I do He's have a, a bad Twitter example account, of a human being. You're Twitter. AI. You're not even really here. That's the thing. That's the, <laughs> I don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a bad example, right? Uh, it's true. Are you are you two going to sign up? I'll sign up. To yeah, you guys are millennials. So yeah. I think we're the demographic. We're the older than yeah. the TikTok, younger than the Facebook audience uh-huh. nowadays so where that brennan and so brett are the new generation they're the next generation right yeah. brennan had his wedding this past weekend so no. he had something else to to deal with right you were at you were in a wedding i knew I you was bought a, a suit party. i wasn't uh, yes wedding yes party. i got a nice new suit um Ooh. and uh, yeah the wedding the wedding went well but you know going back to uh you know musk <laughs> you don't want to talk about your wedding. we're gonna have to yeah. go to a conference so i can see this new suit Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but going back to Musk and Zuckerberg <laughs> fighting, I think that we should uh, get maybe a tag team match here where me and Dunn are versus uh, Ryan and Brett. I think that... Sure, uh, Dunn. Well, no, I'm on Dunn's team. He has MMA <laughs> nope, experience. Nope, I know dibs. how this works. Dibs. I call Dunn. <laughs> We're I wearing have blue hockey today, fighting so experiences. Yeah, Some well, hockey. if we do this on ice, then I'll definitely I'm on Ryan's team. But anywhere else. <laughs> uh, classic. All right, let, let's go into, uh, now that people are bored, crapless about our banter here, let's, um, I, I saw an We've interesting bit of news. 90% of the viewership. Yeah, it's true. Point, so. Saw an interesting bit of news on, on a company or a couple companies. We One company we monitor and one we interviewed in person recently, uh, interviewed them at the Roth conference just coming out of COVID. The news involved a leak on a potential deal between TSX listed Park Lawn Corporation, PLC on the TSX, and New York Stock Exchange listed Carriage Services Inc., CSV on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, both companies provide funeral and cemetery services and merchandise. Carriage is in the United States and Park Lawn is in Canada and the U.S. Now, the news here was in late June, Park Lawn has just now confirmed a rumor of a preliminary non-binding offer to acquire Carriage. Carriage had recently announced a strategic review process, so it's not unexpected that somebody would be looking to take them over. Carriage's shares rose from the $27 range as the news was leaked to the $34 range as this was confirmed. The source of the leak, however, has not been confirmed to our knowledge. The details on the uh, non-binding bid as per the leaked bid letter, it was an all-cash offer, $34 per share, which was about a 25% premium to at the time of the letter when it was issued. The letter actually came out on June 13, and the leaks happened after that. 
The bid letter indicates the Park Lawn has a private equity partner to help finance the offer. Now that private equity was disclosed as Brookfield Asset Management. No details are available regarding the financing structure, but Park Lawn noted that no public equity financing would be required. Uh, the bid letter points to a good strategic fit between the two entities, notably complementary footprint. Uh, there's low regional overlap between their U.S. businesses and meaningful synergies. They, they talked about synergy opportunities in the letter, but there's no details in that regard. Now, often these deals take months to come together. So one might expect that talks right now would still be at a very early stage with less due diligence really executed. However, as Carriage is a public company with publicly reported financials, deals can come together uh, between two public companies a little bit faster because you can look at years and years of financial statements as opposed to a private entity where you're going to have to request those and, and look at them with a little more scrutiny. Uh, now, it's interesting that both death care companies have been experiencing weaker results in recent quarters, trying to find a new normal post-COVID. Uh, death rates were higher during the pandemic, and they are facing tough comparable periods near term. You can look at Carriage's Q1 results. Revenues decreased 2.5% to $95.5 million. EPS declined 43% to $0.57 cents per share from a dollar in Q1 of 2022. Now, while Carriage's stock has surged on the takeover speculation, it is still down 13% over the past year and 48% from its 2022 highs. The stock trades right now on a valuation basis about 15 times its expected EPS for this year. Given the lack of current growth, it is likely more than fairly valued near term. Now, there is some potential for some back and forth here between the two companies uh, and the ultimate price may be higher than $34. Uh, we do not see significant upside unless another death care company really wants the asset and is prepared to kind of reach higher uh, than the price that's being offered right now. It could be an opportune bid by Park Lawn, but I am certain the company is like is not pleased with the leak that came out here today uh, in the last couple of weeks. So an interesting, uh, interesting bid and leak here on a company. Again, one that we've monitored. We've interviewed Park Lawn in the past as well, but we've also interviewed um, Carriage in person. So if they find out who, like this is just a question, if they find out who leaked it, I mean, that person will probably be penalized or some, some kind of action will be taken against them or not really. Like, have you seen this? Yeah, I mean, if it, um, I haven't seen any penalties issues. I mean, there's little teeth in the public markets. I yeah. mean, somebody could be dismissed, right? Like you would think yeah. if, if somebody forwarded If it's an employee of if one it of was, the companies. Then um, perhaps there could be some securities investigation or something like, like that. A legal criminal issue, I wouldn't. No, think. no, likely not. But I mean, if 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 somebody tried to profit on it, right? Like, yeah, and, that and is, th yeah. th then you could have, then you could have, like, if it was insider trading based on this information, then you could yeah, have. So some somebody issues. owned the shares, leaked it, yeah. then sold into the, into the yeah. increase in the price. Then that would be illegal. Certainly. Yeah. yeah so what, well, well, you know, it's, it's also, when you have a deal like this, you, you want to be negotiating, you know, uh, this is, this without, is, without major, that this is a huge, it. huge deal. Um, for Parklawn because um, Carriage actually, I think, has slightly larger revenues. Parklawn's revenues, I think, were in the range of what, like 350 million last year. Carriage is just slightly above that. So this, this is like this is a massive transaction. So 
one of the things I remember, I actually, when we had the interview with the management of Carriage, we spoke to them a little bit about Parklawn because Parklawn is a company we've been covering up here for a while. Um, you know, one of the differences that I noted was that the growth of Carriage was much lower and also the debt leverage of Carriage, I remember, was uh, was certainly on the high end. So you had mentioned 15 times earnings. Um but when you factor in debt, I mean, if you're going to do an yeah, EV, yeah. EBITDA, you know, that's going to be, I, I just, for me, when a company makes a massive transaction like this, there's a lot of risk, right? Like, I'm not going to look at this and run out and buy Park, park Lawn. That's for sure, right? It's, it's a company. I mean, it's it has a great track record over time, weaker in the last, you know, year or two. But with a transaction this size, I'd want to see the smoke clear. I'd want to see the details, how much debt are we looking at? Because this could be something that really makes or breaks a company, probably in, in a lot of cases, more likely to break it, um, depending on what the 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 deals the deal actually looks like at the end. Yeah, you'd have to see the financing terms and everything like that. Like capital is far more expensive right but now. But imagine, so. I mean, for carriage to want to sell, they would need to be getting a decent premium. Yeah. Yeah, is twenty five enough to where it was trading, and you know, and and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens going forward. I thought it was interesting because again, we've sat down with management team in person in terms of carriage and talked on the phone uh, in the past with Park mm-hmm. Lawn, and you don't often. I mean, you think there is leaks, you don't often see uh, a company come out and say like, "Oh, this was leaked, it got out." I'm we're now going to announce this because it does still look like it's preliminary in terms of the deal right now. Um, usually the announcement comes out when the deal is, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is agreed to by both parties. I mean, there are times when a management team will put out an offer if the other side is not amenable and more if it's a hostile bid and they're trying to get shareholder support. You know, that doesn't look like it's the case here. It just was a leaked deal. So let's let's move on. Aaron, you're going to talk about AZZ, a company that uh, provided uh, or posted some fairly strong uh, numbers over the, uh, late last week. Yeah, they've, they've had a very strong Q1. And that that's after a strong um, uh, fiscal 2023 as well. So this is a company that I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about it just as well, because it does fit into the electrification theme. Um, and then with them coming out with results, very strong Q1 results um, last Friday. Um, certainly something that's that's worth reviewing here. So the company AZZ Inc., which under the symbol AZZ on the New York Stock Exchange, and it's about a, mil- a billion dollar market cap company. So this would be considered a small cap in the US, $41 share price, 1.6% yield. And what they do is they're an industrial company and they provide um, various services to different end markets, but it's, it's essentially galvanizing um, encoding solutions. So um, galvanizing and coating of metal products is typically done to um, help deal with things like rust and corrosion, um, typically for for steel, um, as well as other metals, but uh, primarily steel, I believe. So this is an interesting company because they do, as I said, serve some interesting end markets. Uh, taking an excerpt out of the company's off the company's website, they mentioned that over the past sixty years. They've been um, developing comprehensive coding processes to address the challenge of aging infrastructure. So aging infrastructure, this is a theme in the U.S., which we've invested in through other companies. 
Uh, it's well known that there has that there is a major deficit with respect to spending and investment in U.S. infrastructure that has to be reconciled. Um, so money, more money is going into it, and that just means roads, bridges, um, other types of like the power grid, um, other types of institutional uh, infrastructure as well, transportation infrastructure. Uh, there's been an underinvestment in the space, so trillions of dollars need to be invested over the next several years. Right. So the fact that it services this industry and, of course, galvanizing and coding, when you're talking about aging infrastructure, you're essentially trying to get the most you can out of um, your 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 structures so that they're, they're no, they don't corrode or rust. Um, but in addition to that, they also service um, other other areas where they're the company believes that they're secular, secular tailwinds, one of those being the renewable power sector. Um, so they provide their services to the renewable space. So infrastructure renewables fits a little bit into the electrification. Uh, certainly some interesting, attractive end markets here. Looking at the stock price, you know, it's really kind of traded flat um, over the last year, but even over the last five years, some ups and downs, but really kind of ending more or less in the same place. Now, the question is, are they ready for a breakout now? Are we going to see something different in the share price performance given the strong results recently. So let's take a look at those results. As I said, on Friday, they released their Q1 results. Very strong growth in revenues, um, up 89%. We've seen some uh, some gives and takes on the margins here. So gross margin was actually down 420 basis points um, to 24.8% compared to 29% last year. Uh, but they, they substantially reduced they're selling uh, general and administrative expenses relative to sales um, down to 8.1% from 15.5. So operating margins were up 330 basis points, but adjusted EBITDA margins were down 360. So a lot of uh, a lot of gives and takes there. Um, but but adjusted EPI, EBITDA did grow about 63%, 18% growth in adjusted net income. Uh, only though th very muted growth in adjusted EPS, only 3.6%. And a lot of that comes down to uh, an increase in the weighted number of shares outstanding. So when we break into these numbers a little bit to see where the strength is coming from, there's really two segments to the business right now. There's metal coatings and there's pre-coat metals. Um, so metal coatings, this is from what I can tell, you're, you're coating metals after the fact. Pre-coat is when you're you're coating them essentially at the time of of um, construction. So uh, really it's the pre-coat metal segment that delivered this growth. If we look at operating income, it was about flat in the metal coating segment, up about 3.3%. But pre-coat metals operating income was almost $38 million compared to only 6.6 million, right? So this is really the segment of the business that's been driving those returns. And no surprise, um, the company actually acquired its pre-coat metals business in 2022. So this strength that we've seen in the current year was really the result of uh, primarily of an acquisition. And Q1 of this year, that was the first full quarter um, of, of contribution from this acquisition. The company also uh, noted a couple of other things um, such as um, resolving, successfully resolving issues related to excessive customer owned inventories um, which allows them to pr improve production efficiency, better manage their supply chain, as well opportunities in converting customers from post-paint to pre-paint solutions in various industries. So the pre-paint, of course, 
um, being the being the pre-coat metals business. So when we look at the historical track record of this company revenue over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of up and down ups and downs. Um, previous to 2020, you know, revenue more or less, there's consistent growth growth over time, but not consistently. Um, so this does look like a cyclical business. But then in 2021, they actually divested a major part of their business. This was the infrastructure solutions business. That isn't an area that they wanted to be in um, long term. So that that resulted in a decline in revenues from about 1.06 billion down to 480 million in 2021. And then in 2023, we saw huge growth, fiscal 2023, huge growth in revenues from 525 million to 1.32 billion. And that was due to the purchase of their pre-coat metals business. Now looking at 2024, the company does have guidance at the midpoint. They're looking at about 1.48 billion um, in, in revenue. So going through the guidance here on the sales side for the current year, they're looking at revenue growth in the range of six to 17%, adjusted EBITDA growth in the range of 12 to 22%, and then adjusted EPS uh, between 385 and three and 435, which relative to last year would be about 11 to 25% growth. Uh, taking a look at the balance sheet, there, there is a fair bit of leverage on the balance sheet. This spiked up when they made their acquisition in 2022. So at the close of the acquisition, they had a leverage ratio of about 4.2 times. They've since reduced with their free cash flow. They've reduced the debt balance. In uh, Q1, for example, they reduced it by 20 million. Um, but they've now gotten that leverage ratio down to about 3.5 times. I still consider that on the high end, um, but not grossly excessively high. It's at least trending in the right direction. And the company is targeting um, you know, a range of 2.5 to 3 times long term. So I would consider that a reasonable range. I'd probably want to see it more in the you know 2.5 times area maybe even 2 to 2.5 times but you know we're not looking at excessive debt levels here or grossly excessive debt levels uh and at least we can see those leverage ratios trending in the right direction and then valuation valuation looks pretty good uh based on the current share price the midpoint of adjusted e e eps guidance we're looking at about 10 times um expected current year's earnings so certainly a discount to the market uh you know, I have no issues with the valuation. The valuation looks pretty good. So just summing this up, our take, uh, positive growth. I mean, they are expecting pretty good growth this year. Um, this will be, this will be, you know, largely organic growth because, you know, most of their benefit, they made their acquisition in 2022 towards the end of, um, towards the end of Q1. So, uh, future quarters are going to have that, the ac acquisition contribution in there. They have some attractive end markets, which we like. They're deleveraging their balance sheet, the low valuation as well. Um, now, on the opposite side, we still think even though the balance sheet has been deleveraged, the debt leverage is still on the high, high end. There's also a wide range in the guidance in terms of what they're expecting. So it's really, you know, it's really hard to say where, where they're going to come in. But 11 to 25 percent, um, even on the bottom range, 11 percent uh, adjusted EPS growth looks fairly reasonable. Um, I will also say that just the, the the recent history of the company disposing of such a substantial portion of the business, as well as making that very large acquisition just recently, 
that certainly adds to risk. It makes the business difficult to analyze. But overall, I think that this company looks interesting. It's something we're adding to the monitor list. We're going to continue to do our research on it. Yeah, it's an interesting business. That growth quarter was tremendous on the top line for sure. And uh, I guess the 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 debt, like you said, is an issue. So I think it's a good good summary of it to see if there is uh, continued growth going forward. I, I mean, I looked at analyst estimates going out. Like you said, there is growth expected this year, but um, obviously it's slowed from you know what we saw in that quarter. Mm-hmm. Any comments, even you guys, in, or you want to move on? Won. Yeah. I mean, on the first share line, it wasn't that it's impressive at not all. That We're actually looking though. for an acceleration of per share growth, which is good to see. Um, Bottom but line, when, or when top it, line slowing. Top line slowing, bottom line per share yeah. accelerating. Yeah. yeah. But whenever you make such a large acquisition, there's just, there's only so many unknowns when it comes to integrating it. Um, and they're still in the process of integration, I would say perhaps the latter end of the process, but you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're about a year out from where it was acquired and this is, you know, effectively half or more of the revenue. So that's certainly some risk involved in that. And it's good to see just over the next couple quarters, are they able to hit these targets? Um, because as I said, as well, there's a wide range on the targets. Yeah. I mean, probably sensitive to the overall economic cycle too. So oh, I would well, think so. Absolutely. As sure. most yeah. industrial businesses are yeah. now. Yeah. All right, Brett, you wanted to look at earnings quality. We talk about, you know, looking at companies' earnings cash flow on, on a weekly basis. You want to look at, you know, some of the items that maybe we like to remove out of reported earnings or heard it, uh, and, and just get into how we look at a business in terms of their cash flow and their earnings statements. Yeah. So I'm really going to talk about earnings quality and like how it ties into valuation of company. The topic really, like Ryan says, it comes up because we commonly highlight things when we don't like when they're in earnings, especially adjusted earnings or other metrics that companies report. So first off, if you're not aware, earnings quality, if you look online, there's slightly different wording and definitions. I'll really define it here as earnings quality is how reliable earnings are for the current and future quarters as well as how persistent their earnings are going forward, simply how well the financials represent the company in its current and prospectively in its future state. The need for analyzing earning quality is really due to our accrual accounting system versus just pure cash flows. Accrual accounting attempts to reconcile these cash flows with the actual operations of the business, but because cash flows are really just lumpy. A basic example of this, a very basic example, I should say, is if you purchased $80 of inventory in Q1 but did not sell it, under a cash system, you'd be down $80. Where under accrual accounting systems, you don't account for it until the inventory is sold as you match the cost with revenue when it occurs. So in the next quarter, Q2, if you sold the revenue for $100, you'd recognize $100 in revenue, and then you'd recognize the $80 cost then, as well as the $20 in gross profit. Really, accrual accounting is just trying to smooth out the revenues and costs to match the reality of the company's operations is cash flows. They're just lumpy and don't always represent the company's operations within that time period. Because let's say another example, if you got an upfront payment, that's like 90% of the company's revenue for the year, but it's all in one quarter, you'd be realizing that all right away, which obviously that's not realistic. But unfortunately, accruals just require estimates and judgments so they can be inaccurate or even potentially be manipulated. So the issue is as well, management actually has incentives to make earnings look good as well as they can. 
So you have a system that is able to be manipulated and the party who controls much of the process being incentivized to manipulating earnings. So obviously there's been many issues with that in the past. Two of the largest examples of extremely low earning qualities uh, ending in bankruptcy are Enron and WorldCom. Part of Enron's fraud was using mark-to-mark accounting, mark-to-market accounting, which is normally reserved for financial in- institutions. And they use it to inflate their earnings by having future estimated cash flow. So there's an estimate represented in current earnings as a present cash flow, vastly increasing earnings with little relying on he- with little um, evidence of like their future earnings and cash flows coming through. And it's all just in the future, not at the present, but they were saying it's in the present. Whereas WorldCom, they capitalized expenses, which effectively means they realize over time propping up current earnings. So there's two different cases, very well known. You you can look into them in depth more if you want to, but neither WorldCom or uh, Enron had cash flows. So they'd be low earnings quality just because of that standard. When you have that big gap between reported earnings and cash flows, that can be a really strong sign that you're having earnings manipulation. But more commonly, and probably more important to us, is earnings manipulation is not completely fraudulent companies. The term earnings management is when a manager manages the company's accrual to really fit its needs or the manager's needs. As I mentioned before, accrual accounting really requires estimates. Some of those items have high, high management discretion. So the management really gets to choose what they're going to do with it. A couple of examples of this is account receivable for the portion of the accounts which uh, the, co- the customer who paid for the goods or what should pay for the goods, they don't pay. So you might have an account receivable uh, write down in the future and they have to estimate effectively how much that is going to be written down and how much they're actually going to receive. Inventory, how much should be written down or kept at the current value. Property, plant, and equipment where the management needs to estimate the life of the asset, which impacts the depreciation, which impacts the depreciation expense, which if they have a long life, when it should be a short life, that would increase earnings. And of course, many, many, many more. All these actions are within gap principles, but are highly dependent on managerial decisions, which allows the manager to manage or massage earnings to fit what they need for the quarter or set up earnings for the future quarters. Managing earnings could be self-interest, such as just hitting a bonus target, profit from insider trading, or for the company's sake to issue shares at a higher price. That is not to say these estimates can't be just changed in good faith, but it's not always clear if they are in good faith. For example, current one in the, their most recent 10K, so at the start of the year, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, just Google just increased the estimated life of its servers from four to six years and other related equipment from five to six years, meaning depreciation expenses lower about $988 million, And after the tax adjustments, net income by increasing by $770 million, or about six cents in the last quarter, increasing their last quarter's EPS by about 5%. Even though nothing really changed for the company, they literally just changed their estimate. That's all they changed, 5% increase. That's better growth than some companies do just by changing an estimate. So is it in good faith where the initial estimates just wrong and they need to update them? Or were they doing the proper thing? You can't really tell in this situation. Further, let's shift out of gap earnings, which are rule-based, but you can kind of shift around them to non-gap metrics, which are becoming more and more common. Non-gap earnings really allow for management discretion just to do what they want. They include and disclude what they want to report. Common metrics like EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted earnings, free cash flow, many, many more. They are commonly reported these days, and especially in press releases. S&P 500 companies who report at least one gap metric increased from 59% in 1996 to 94% in 2020, as well as they 
uh, now report from an average of 2.5 in 1996 metrics which is now seven and a half so they're reporting their adjusted EBITDA, their adjusted earnings and so on instead of just a couple of them the pro of non-gap earnings is they can potentially better represent the company's operations such as removing one-off impacts like acquisition costs but also they do decrease comparability between companies because it's not standardized as well as they increase management discretion resulting in easy earnings management or massaging whatever you want to call it so let's take a, an example that i've been using my punching bag lately nvidia since it was in the spotlight last quarter their gap eps was 82 cents versus non-gap of 109 the uplift was just primarily due to stock compensation which contributed about 21 cents of the 27 cents of the uplift whereas other companies they just they don't issue much stock compensation or they don't add it back to their uh adjusted earnings so that reduces comparable earnings so if you're comparing Nvidia with another stock, they're going to look more comparable just because they added it back if you're just using their headline earnings, which you'll constantly see referenced online, even analysts which just straight up use them. And really, let's look at what Nvidia could have done and it would have been included in, in uh, their earnings even under this. So they issue shares, they could have issued shares or sold options or warrants in the public market or to a private investor, replicating their stock compensation and paying the uh employee which initially was stock compensation and cash instead same dilution same outlook but it would be lower gap earnings under non-gap earnings under them doing that method but it has the same overall impact so which one are you going to choose the point is just it's purely non-standardized managerial decision and it's just raising headline earnings which many people end up using in their valuations making them more appealing investments and that's really why we constantly bring up stock compensation as well as other things, even acquisitions we've brought up before. When it's a company which is a serial acquirer, they're discluding these acquisition costs, yet they're there every single quarter. Is that really representing their operations when it's these non-gap adjustments? Really, I want the takeaway for people to get from this is you need to understand what's going into earnings and especially non-gap earnings because they are just blatantly uh, quite different than what they should be. And lots of times they are just propping up earnings. Uh, and yeah, I guess I'll open it up to you guys. Well, I love the topic of earnings quality because, you know, we talk about earnings, we talk about price to earnings multiples, but ultimately, you know, the first step is, do we trust the earnings? Is this a real number that actually represents economic value being created or is it just, uh, an accounting fabrication? And in some cases it is an accounting fabrication and people still use it, but you know, one of the one there's different ways of looking at an earnings quality. One way is to just measure the reported earnings to the cash flow, the operating cash flow. See if there's any major discrepancy there. If cash flow is 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 significantly more than the reported earnings, then that's an indication that the earnings are are positive, or the earning earnings quality is positive. But you know, if if cash flow is less or negative then there may be no earnings quality. You know, that is not something that necessarily works all the time. So in the US, particularly, the biggest difference between gap and non-gap earnings would be stock-based compensation. And um, stock-based compensation does not impact operating cash flow in the period um, that you're you're actually looking at and analyzing. So then you need to, you know, go beyond that and just get into the discussion of should we actually subtract stock-based stock stock based compensation and that's a whole other whole other segment which we've done in the past as well mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's cer- certain industries where we kind of have to watch the quality of earnings, and one that I, comes to mind right away is the medical uh, equipment industry, medical services industry, particularly in the U.S., where some of the companies will book earnings, you know, in a current quarter, and they have to still collect that. And some of the collection periods can go you know, be a year or two out, and and then you you either don't end up collecting as much as they originally, like Brett talked about, just being an estimate. Right, you're estimating how much, and you don't collect as much as you originally thought. In some cases, I have seen collecting more, but mostly it's on the lower side, and you really gotta make sure you uh, you're trusting either the estimate or or just looking at the cash flow, not the the earnings that are reported on a business like that. You can get into trouble. All right, um, we got a final segment here, Brennan. You're ripping up fellow Canadian podcaster. I can't believe you're doing this. It's it's terrible that you're. I'm just kidding. You're, you're gonna look at uh, just uh, you saw an ad, right? Uh, yeah, for exactly. uh, how to construct an easy ETF portfolio using BMO ETFs. Exactly. And you're gonna so, go over your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know if and I'm. We gonna have no part completely to it at ripping. All. Her, but I will. Uh, That's you what know, you'll analyze. be doing. We'll be defending her. That's what we'll be doing. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. While I was on Facebook, and yes, uh, I mean from our previous uh, comment, I, I actually do use Facebook still. Uh, so while I was on Facebook, right? I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm old. I'm old. Uh, no, but uh, while I was on Facebook, I came across this ad from uh, Jessica Morehouse, who has a Canadian podcast for an easy ETF portfolio using BMO's ETFs. And knowing that big bank advisors and brokers tend to over-diversify their clients' portfolios through hundreds of stocks, I thought that I would dig in to see what kind of portfolio composition we would actually end up with if we did invest in an equally weighted average across these five ETFs. So let's just quickly look at these five ETFs, and then I will summarize the portfolio at the end uh, and just a note, um, I have gotten all of the info from these ETFs directly from BMO's website. So the first uh, ETF here, uh, ZCN on the TSX, which is BMO's S&P TSX capped composite index, which essentially aims to replicate the return of the TSX index. And like the Canadian market, it is heavily weighted toward financials and energy stocks. The next here, we have ZSP on the TSX, which is BMO's S&P 500 index. And this just tries to track the S&P 500, or in other words, the US market. Then we also have here uh, ZEA, which is BMO's MSCI EAFE index, which tracks the markets in Europe, Australasia, and the Far East, which is what EAFE stands for. And then... As well, we have uh, ZEM on the TSX, which is BMO's um, MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's just emerging markets. And then last, we have BMO's Aggregate uh, Bond Index ETF, which invests through Canadian government and corporate bonds. So in summary here, if one was to invest in these five ETFs based on an equally weighted average, You would end up with a portfolio that holds over 2,300 stocks and just under 1,500 bonds with an asset allocation of about 80% in stocks and 20% in bonds. Now, first off, with our philosophy of trying to find the next Boyd, Expel, Hammond Power, Water Furnace, 
absolute game changer for client game changers for clients portfolios. I think that this ETF portfolio is way over diversified with over 2300 stocks. And in the words of Bill Gross, any good investment ideas that are in this portfolio are essentially being diversified away into meaningless oblivion. So even if one name provides a return of 500% or 1000% or 10,000%, it really isn't going to make the needle move for your overall portfolio. Now, number two here on the fees being paid for holding these ETFs, generally, I do think that they are reasonable. And you can see here, I made a few simple calculations using the weighted average management expense ratio or MER, which is about 0.148%. And based on some hypothetical amounts that have been invested across these ETFs, if you invested $100,000, you would pay about $148 per year. Or if you invested $1 million, you would pay about $1,500 per year. Now, for the sector and geographic breakdown of the stocks across the portfolio, I think that financials are a little overweight here at just under 20%. And realistically, I think that I would want my portfolio to have more than 25% exposure to the US market. I mean, maybe that's just uh, personal for, for my, my own self, um, as you know, the US is a leader in tech innovation. And I would likely want to limit my exposure to other locations in the world, such as China, which makes up 7% of the portfolio. And although it's quite small, also Russia, which makes up just under 1% of the portfolio. So all in all, for an investor that just wants to ride the market of markets of the world, I do not think that this portfolio of ETFs is bad. But for someone who actually wants to build a portfolio that isn't over diversified and can position your uh, or can position you for life changing stocks, I would advise that you avoid uh, you know, making a portfolio of ETFs like this. So yeah, I'll open it up to you guys. See if you guys have any comments on this. If you have, if you're, it's a couple things. If your goal is just to mirror the markets globally, um, it's fine. This portfolio is fine. Um, that's what you can do here. Yeah. Uh, you know, number two, don't pay an advisor for this advice. Like yeah. this, this is something you do by yourself. Don't pay 1% in terms of an advisor because Brennan talked about the fee there. Their advisors will, will put you into this portfolio. And you know if you, if you got a million dollar portfolio or even a hundred thousand dollar portfolio, $200,000 portfolio, you got a one to one and a half percent overlay fee on that. So it's a thousand dollars on you know, a hundred thousand, two thousand dollars on uh, 200,000. If even if it's 1%, you know, $10,000 that you're going to pay out for advice to go into a uh, portfolio such as this, you certainly don't need much advice to do this because you're just mirroring the markets. And, you know, at least the fees are low, which is good. Yeah. But so don't pay an advisor. But um, make no mistake, if your goal in the market is try to try to beat the market, there is no way this structure can do that. So if you just want to set it, forget it. If that's what you want to do, have some participation in the markets, you could use a structure like this. Uh, there's probably other ways that we might want to uh, structure it, but you know this is fine. It's defensible in that respect. But if you have any goal of trying to beat the market return over time, this would not be the way to go about it, in my opinion. Agreed. Well, no, I mean it's not your opinion. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's, no. it's, yeah. it's not an opinion. It's a fact. Ways, like, I have no problem with this portfolio um, as yeah. a passive investment portfolio. I've said to people, I say, you know probably you can do it with two to four ETFs. I, 
some people want to have ETFs that give them direct exposure to foreign markets outside of North America. Um, by investing in the S&P 500 index, you are investing Basically in a lot of companies that are global. So, you, you, you know, if you want to really simplify it, you could probably do that with just a Canadian and a US and then maybe a bond ETF if you want bonds. But there's there's different ways in terms of strategy of investing in the market that one way to break it down would be passive and active, right? So uh, a passive investor, investor is somebody who just wants to mirror the market, right? The market goes up, they go up. Um, the market goes down, they go down by about the same amount minus fees, right? So passive investing is for somebody who just doesn't want to do, they don't want to do any individual stock purchases or sales. They just want to, you know, buy their mutual funds and and coast with the market up and down and not have to look at it or think about it really that much. You don't buy and sell, you don't trade in and trade out. It's a long-term strategy. You just go with the market. Nothing wrong with that if that's what you're looking for. Um, Active investing is when you want to actually outperform the market and you do this um, almost always through buying and selling individual stocks, right? So active investing gives you the opportunity to generate outsized returns, also the risk that you will underperform the market, but certainly the opportunity to outperform the market and the opportunity to invest in some very unique companies that are doing incredible things in terms of solving problems for society, right? So that's an active investing strategy. Buying ETFs is not an active, active investing strategy. Buying individual stocks is an active investing strategy. So it really comes down to what you want as an investor. If you're looking to generate those market beating returns and invest in individual stocks or individual themes that you think are going to essentially propel society forward, um, then you're going to want to focus on individual stocks, or at least with a portion of your portfolio. Now, what some investors will do is they'll do what's called a hybrid investing strategy, and they'll take a portion of their portfolio, they'll put it into ETFs, such as some of these, they'll take a portion of their portfolio, they'll actively invest it. Um, and that way, they're getting the opportunity to invest in some great companies while they're remaining widely diversified with the rest of their capital. Um, and what that mix looks like really depends on the investor. It might be 80% passive, 20% active, 50-50, or 20% passive, 80% active. Really just depends on the individual investor. So, um, but the the thing to really understand is that, you know, you don't want to mix, in my opinion, active investment with, in, with the same capital. You don't want to try and get wide diversification and invest actively at the same time. Um, if you want to get wide diversification, go with an indexed ETF, low cost indexed ETF. If you want to outperform the market, you need to focus your capital strategically in strong areas and strong stocks. Um, and when it comes to mutual funds, there are a lot of mutual funds out there that will try to outperform the market while also being widely diversified. And they almost always fail long term, but they charge higher fees um, due to their effort to try and outperform the market, which they tend almost always not to do. So, you know, you could, if you have, you know, say a million dollars, you can take a portion of that, put it in ETFs, take a portion of that, put it in active management. Yeah. And, and again, again, what I was stressing is if you're going to use a strategy like this, you do not need an advisor charging you 1%. If you like, we, I've seen several portfolios where it's a million, $2 million and they have somebody charging 1% to do this. Yeah, that no, is you, not. you don't need no, you don't need an do not do that. You're just getting ETFs fees easily in a discount brokerage, and you can yes. just set it up even so that you're purchasing a certain amount every automatically month yeah. or every quarter. 
um, and they're they're extremely easy to buy. So you don't you don't need to pay an advisor. You know. Yeah, so you're, you're basically cutting yourself. Board. You're cutting yourself off of the knees because you get the the benefit of these are they're low cost. But if you overlay a 1% portfolio fee on top of that, you're basically cutting that benefit out yeah. and you're going to significantly underperform the market because of that fee. So if you're going to do this, you can do that yourself with a discount brokerage. And that's what we tell people all the time. And Aaron said, it's active versus passive. If you want to beat the market, you have to use a different strategy. I mean, mm -hmm. that's obviously what we provide the clients on. a. Yep. And you can get pretty basis. good diversification in a passive strategy with even just two or three. Yeah. Yeah. Too, I even so. found it interesting that like some of these funds here also held like I like funds. You know, 11, yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. fund to yeah. funds, you know, 11.4% of this is in iShares emerging markets. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. you could just go maybe buy iShares if you wanted. I mean, depending on the MER, you know, another question that I'd have too is, you know, is, you know, I'm not pointing fingers. I have no idea if, if she does have some partnership with BMO or, you know, if there is, but, you know, that would be, you know, something that I would you know, like to know as well, uh, is, uh, whether, you know, this is kind of marketing with BMO as well, but yeah, it could be understand. disclosed right there. And, yeah, and I, I think there's just some like good educational work on this stuff that's being done, but this, this, this portfolio, you know, it's just, it's your, it's your portfolio, but don't have, don't pay an advisor to get this portfolio in our opinion, in my opinion, I, I you, know, you don't need that. And, uh, if you want to beat the market, you need to structure your portfolio differently. And we talk, we do seminars on that all the time. I think that's going to close out our show. Any final comments? Brennan, are you I, getting married or was my, it just a marriage? It wasn't my no, wedding. Okay. It was my cousin's okay. wedding. Yeah. So, so uh, you're, you're still signal? Uh, yes, I am still. <laughs> listen still up, still ladies. <laughs> yeah, listen yeah, yeah. up. That's new haircut, new me. We're putting, a, yeah, we're putting an ad out there for Brennan right now. There you go. Uh, tweet us or, or wait, thread us. Do you say thread, thread us? What do we say on that? I guess so. You say maybe. thread? Or did it because Twitter thread? has tweets? What does threads have? Is it threads? Links? But threads is threads or thread? <laughs> I don't know, man. Threads. We don't know yet. We'll figure Threat, out threads. Thread. Yeah, just we're not us. even on threads, but threads. Brennan's got some nice threads on. That's all I know. Thank all right, you. that's enough of this. Let's let's move on. Thanks everyone for listening or watching. Uh, if you want to rate and review us on the podcast version of this, do that on iTunes. We'd love to. Have you rate and review us on there only if it's positive, obviously. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, smash the subscribe button and we'll keep putting out the content on a weekly basis. Send your questions in for our Your Stock Our Take segments and we'll answer those on a weekly basis. If you got any other questions you want to know about the financial markets, uh, we'll let you know on a podcast too. So send those in. As always, I'd like to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.